Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Hey folks, Jason Moore here. Today we're going to be looking at how to build a nutrition and lifestyle plan from the ground up that includes important aspects of human psychology and innovative use of technology. We'll be looking at genetic wiring, neuroregulation of appetite, which is basically how your body and brain strongly influence what you choose to eat and when, and the role of hyperpalatable foods. To top it off, we'll also be looking at simple self-quantification tests that you can perform on yourself to determine things like optimal carbohydrate intake for your situation, and a whole lot more. For all of this, we're joined by New York Times bestselling author Rob Wolf to discuss these topics as they are covered in his newly released book called Wired to Eat. A quick background on Rob, he is a former research biochemist, a health expert, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Paleo Solution, and also the eagerly anticipated Wired to Eat, which we'll be discussing today. He's been a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and Journal of Evolutionary Health. He serves on the board of directors of Specialty Health Medical Clinic in Reno, Nevada, and is also a consultant for the Naval Special Warfare Resilience Program. He's also a former California State powerlifting champion and holds the rank of blue belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He lives in Reno, Nevada with his wife, Nikki, and daughters, Zoe and Sagan, and is full of a wealth of knowledge uh, on a wide variety of topics. So this is actually a rather meaty episode, um, but I encourage you to listen all the way through to the end because there's a lot of great tidbits that you can pick up and things that you can implement today. Um, and I also share a couple facts about Rob Wolf that nobody knows, including Rob himself. So that'll be interesting. And without further ado, let's dive in. Rob Wolf, welcome to the show. Huge honor to be here. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for joining us. Um, actually, the last two episodes here on the Elite HIV podcast really couldn't have been a better setup for this discussion. Uh, we had Coach Alex Fergus share his journey through the discordance hypothesis and how kind of aligning his environment and his genetics uh, and evolutionary needs created some really fantastic results for himself and his clients. It was, uh, it's been a hit episode so far, followed by the last episode, which was Dan Quintana, an Aussie PhD living in Norway, as an aside. Um, but he shared his knowledge of psychophysiology and some of his research that connects my, the mind, mental health, physical health. And of course, he's primarily looking at changes in the autonomic nervous system and HRV, but it was a really fascinating discussion. And so, yeah, just kind of like encompassing how these concepts of self-understanding, smart quantification, and kind of uniting the pillars of health, which we're going to talk about here, are really huge for this community. So I'm I'm very excited to dig into it. Oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, and you know, oftentimes I see these camps um, too entrenched on one side of the story or the other, like this kind of ancestral health scene. They're too focused on this kind of like caveman reenactment story. And then the quantified self people, I see them kind of forget that, you know, nature is 
our our fundamental reality and so they think that there's some way that we can biohack around that when in actually what we're doing is trying to figure out how to optimize what nature has given us and and things like HRV glucometers and and some really simple tools can shed some light into how to optimize that so I really like the fact that you've got this synthesis going on yeah thank you I've kind of been using this technology quantified self and biohacking concept mm-hmm. as a foot in the door towards exploring the bigger picture of holistic and evolutionary approaches to optimizing health and performance. So um, it's been a really fun journey. It's It's been really well received by the community, actually. Wicked smart. I like it. <laughs> So before we get started with some questions, one quick fact about Rob Wolf that nobody knows, including Rob himself. Um, I've listened to a bunch of podcasts over the years, uh, many of the top rated most download podcasts. And uh, I have to admit that one of the podcasts that I continue to go back to is Rob's podcast. And in fact, it was the first podcast that I really got into and listened to multiple episodes. So, oh, well, thank you. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a big it's a big honor to have you here. I mean, your work's influenced the way I approach my own health and performance and the way I portray these topics to others and just thought it'd be interesting for folks since here we are listening to this podcast. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. That that's super cool. Yeah. So yeah, let's dive in a little bit on this stuff. Um, I've I've read both of your books. Uh, the first book, at the time of its releasing, it was kind of one of the first single resources to really package some of the foundational science of some of the topics that we're about to discuss. And combining that with kind of starting to answer the question like, how the heck do I actually start down this road? And uh, we're mostly talking about nu- nutrition at this point. Um, And I really enjoyed it, but I have to say Wired to Eat really takes this all to a whole new level. And you've obviously grown and learned a lot since that first book. So, um, you know, with that, what have you kind of been up to since Paleo Solution in 2010? Oh man! So we we uh, we left Chico, which is where we had the the gym. We were the I I don't know if people know this, but I helped to co-found the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. And if people like CrossFit, then they think that's kind of cool. If they hate CrossFit, then I'm kind of like the Antichrist for you know <laughs> spreading the stuff like syphilis on a college campus. But that was where I learned a lot of I guess the. Um, kind of clinical implementation side, like working within the gym. And then we also had a seminar series that we went all around the world talking to folks about this stuff. But right after I I wrote the first book, we decided that we wanted to leave Chico and check some other places out. We spent a year in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and then got pregnant. And we were trying to figure out where we would go. And my wife's father lives in Reno, Nevada. And so we decided, ah, heck, we'll go to Reno for you know, a year or two and then really figure out where we're going to go from there. And we were in town maybe three weeks and I got a phone call and the guy on the other end of the line identified himself as Greeny, which I thought was kind of odd. And uh, (laughs) he said, Hey, you know, I'm part of a medical clinic. We want you to come down and check out what we're doing. And so I went, went downtown and checked out this clinic and I walked in and there were a bunch of my books and Gary Tobbs books and Lauren Cordain's books in there. And it was like I had gone to some bizarro reality. Like usually mainstream medical outlets would, you know, box these books up and burn them instead of actually <laughs> having them for sale there. And as I, I got to know these folks, Greeny turned out to be Dr. Jim Greenwald, who is a, a now retired but formerly pretty famous 
orthopedic surgeon, and he was involved with a risk assessment program where they worked with the Reno Police, Reno Fire Department to find people that were at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And they found 35 folks that really fit this bill. Uh, they did some advanced testing on them, some health risk assessment stuff, and crunched it in their database. And they're like, okay, these are the high-risk folks. And then they took these people and put them on a low-carb paleo diet, got them to modify their sleep and exercise as best they could within the constraints of doing police and fire work. And based off the changes in their health risk assessment and their blood work, it's estimated that the city of Reno saved $22 million with a 33 to one return on investment with this program. And so that was pretty, pretty impressive. I had talked um, for some time about, uh, I suspected that there was a Moore's law opportunity within medicine. If we applied this evolutionary biology template to the whole process. And then I, instead of just theorizing about that, I had a pretty interesting example of that. And so the last five years I've been working to try to scale this process and take it up out to the masses. And I really thought it was going to be a slam dunk deal. You know, it's like this stuff works. We've got great data. We'll go out and, you know, get, get everybody uh, changing what they're doing. But it's, it's been really fascinating. The um, structure of the current healthcare environment and just the environment in general, like this is part of what I, I learned, uh, you know, in trying to roll this thing out. The uh, subsidized junk food story is really, really powerful and really compelling and very hard to get people to to eat differently. And it, it uh, caters to our evolutionary biology in a way that, um, you know, is is just damn hard to to avoid. And so there, there's been a lot more challenges rolling this thing out and scaling it than what I initially thought. But I've definitely learned a lot and we we continue to. Uh, chip away at that. But the efficacy of that program really lit a fire under me that I wanted to get this ancestral health story out to more people. And in the book, I actually talk about the risk assessment program at length, but I also wanted to tackle this in a way that was different than that, that basic, like kind of caveman reenactment story. And I think about three years ago, I ran across a paper that was talking about brain development and the omnivore's real dilemma. And it was just a huge eye-opener for me and also an amazing synthesis piece that just tied a bunch of stuff together. And it made me look at um, kind of the way that our appetite was forged in the ancestral environment from this kind of thermodynamics, economics perspective. There's this concept called optimum foraging strategy where we're basically wired genetically and thermodynamically to eat more and move less. Like that's the story of every organism on the planet, except for humans and our pets, because we've developed enough technology to be able to, you know, circumvent that natural world. And we can order food to our front door, sit in our underwear all day and, and, uh, you know, um, uh, basically max out that optimum foraging strategy story by eating so many calories and doing such little work that, uh, you know, from a, uh, ancestral perspective, I guess it's a win, but at this point, clearly it's not doing us a lot of good when we look at rates of obesity, neurodegenerative diseases, autoimmune diseases and whatnot. So I, I wanted to get this ancestral health message out, but I also really wanted to couch it in some terms that were almost more fundamental in this understanding the way our appetite works is really where the rubber hits the road. Like there's a lot of drama around 
you know, is it just calories or is it just hormones? And there's kind of a reality. Both of these, these stories intermesh and have elements of truth, but the real trick, and this is different from person to person, the real trick to keep people lean and healthy and disease free is figuring out a way that they can live out in the real world, not in a metabolic ward setting and make choices that, you know, are satisfying, but uh, not cocaine like and, and effectively addictive. And so that's kind of the the whole thrust of the book is telling this story about the neuroregulation of appetite so that people have an understanding that, you know, if they find it challenging navigating the modern food world, they shouldn't be surprised. Like, that's OK. We we still have a lot of work to do. We don't want to just like roll over and die and let this this other process win. But if we can kind of diffuse the guilt and the morality and the kind of shame around the fact that this is some challenging work, then we can, you know, maybe uh, uh, get started on a good foot. Yeah. And uh, I mean, if if folks can't tell by listening to you, you're very passionate about the subject and it really shines through in the book. I mean, like you said, kind of arranging it in a way that presents it not as not as a caveman reenactment, not that. Not that honestly that the whole paleo message is that way, but that's the way it gets couched, like you right. said. Um, and it it looks at the bigger picture. And But really, though, let's kind of break that down a little. Like, aside from just being a more complete picture in Wired to Eat, what are kind of the main differences between paleo solution and, and Wired to Eat? Oh, man. You know, the the a big thing that was made clear... And maybe back up even a little bit more. My first foray into this kind of ancestral eating was actually a ketogenic diet. I was really, really sick, had all kinds of GI problems, had ulcerative colitis so bad that I was down to about 130 pounds. And normally, like right now, I'm five foot nine, probably eight to ten percent body fat, pretty lean, pretty muscular. I, I do a little bit of gymnastics, a little bit of old guy Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And um at the low ebb of my health from this uh, ulcerative colitis, I was 130 pounds due to malabsorption. Like I would shovel food down, Yikes. but it came out pretty much the same way it went in. Yeah. And I mean, I was <laughs> a mess. My sleep was terrible. My hair was falling out. Like I was really in rough shape. And it's kind of a long story of how I, I came to this, this idea of this ancestral health or paleo diet concept. But my first exposure was actually to a, a low carb approach. And for me and my physiology, it was it, it was just like a switch had been flipped. And for the first time in my life, and this is, you know, at age 27, 28, I felt good. And I, I mean like really good. And I could go six, eight, 10 hours or even a day without eating. Not that I did that all the time, but this is in contrast to my whole life leading up to this where as I was eating one meal, I was planning the next meal because I knew that when I hit that low blood sugar crash after the current meal, I was going to be a mess, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was almost like an emphysemic with an oxygen bottle, um, you know, the way that I had to approach food. And then when I experienced this low carb ketogenic way of eating, it was literally, it was just liberation. Like I was free. I could do anything I wanted, you know, short of eating a bunch of carbs. But, you know, that was a, a paltry price to pay for how good I felt, the body composition, the performance, really good cognition. But what this did is it really created a confirmation bias on my part. 
I, I decided that because this worked for me, this would work for everybody. And, it, you know, a good chunk of time went by where I was very, very focused on this low carb approach. And still with the, the caveat there, most people who have weight issues are insulin resistant. There's lots of other health issues that are also insulin driven. And if we reduce carbohydrate intake, we tend to spontaneously address these issues. So I don't want to undervalue how important that is. But at the same time, not everybody is insulin resistant. And as people regain their health, um, this is something that, again, is kind of different with me. I still, 20 years later, tend to do better on kind of a lower carb approach. I eat like 75 to 100. 50 grams of carbs a day, um, mainly from whole food sources. The, um, the amounts vary based off my volume and intensity of activity, but I still eat kind of on the lower carb side of things. But a lot of people found that once they reverse the gut damage, reduced systemic inflammation, they actually could do great on a higher carbohydrate intake. So long as there were, you know, certain, kind of caveats addressed there. You couldn't completely do the hookers and cocaine, like total crappy food and, <laughs> and expect to not slide back to where you were. But this was something that that was a slow learning process for me. And so a big difference between the paleo solution and wired to eat with wired to eat. I start, you know, on the implementation side, I do start people on kind of this whole foods, anti-inflammatory paleo type approach but I provide a really good triage process so that people can figure out where they are on this insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance spectrum so that they drop in on a 30 day reset, either on the lower, moderate or higher carb side of things. And then after they do that for about 30 days, I recommend a seven day carb test where they use a blood glucose monitor and do some subjective observations like how do you feel between meals, what's your cognitive function like, and, and stuff like that. But then we anchor it with this really objective hard data about what your blood glucose response is to a particular meal two hours after eating it. And so we're able to get really granular and really specific so that we can provide as much latitude in a person's nutrition as we can possibly get, which I, I think is great. It's good for nutrient you know, variety. It's good for reducing the likelihood of developing food sensitivities. And also it's just more enjoyable. You, you know, you have more, more latitude, but again, we can get quite granular with the whole process. So instead of assuming that we know what the story is, we can help people find their way through this process. And they may find that they do better on the lower carb side of things or the moderate or even the, the higher carb approach. Yeah. And you know, just to kind of reiterate some of those points that I felt kind of the same way looking back when I read um, Paleo Solution and just a lot of the other uh, information that was available around that time. It was very uh, much, well, I suppose there's tons that's like this now too, but it was much more black and white um, from all sides. And now there's a little bit more folks that are really interested in uh, the the more nuanced take and the more kind of, well, it doesn't quite work that well for me kind of mentality, you know? Uh, so that's what I felt like the main difference was as well, is that uh, not only are we looking at a framework here uh, that guides most people in the right direction, but we're also dialing it in for each person. And that message kind of resonates so well with this community here. Oh, awesome. Um, cool. You know, because... 
naturally the interest in heart rate variability and self-quantification and like for example in the app we we put uh, subjective measures in there like mood and things um, so that folks can kind of track those things alongside each other so it's 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 really a natural fit oh thanks and and it's always a, it's always a challenge because you know you it, somebody who doesn't spend a lot of time doing nutrition stuff you know like they just decide that they want to eat better they want to lose some weight they they they're not feeling that great like you don't want to blow them out of the water with a ton of details so you want to keep things kind of 30,000 foot level and give them some some guidelines to play within but then the the danger there is that those guidelines get written into stone tablets and turned into religious doctrine instead of you know just being guideposts and so there's a there's a constant um kind of give and take or drama with that uh, between getting these big picture messages out there to help a lot of people and just kind of get them going in a good direction, but then not forgetting that it is just a starting point. You know, it's, it may not be the end point and we still need to do some fiddling to find that out. Right. And what I've found is uh, over the years, I've done a ton of digging into nutrition optimization and just general health lifestyle stuff. I've also worked with clients hands on and done lots of experimentation on both myself and clients. But what I found is that it's really important to find some solid guiding principles and to, uh, you, you know, even that may take some experimentation, but um you know, find those guiding principles that really seem to resonate with uh, your understanding um, and then stick with those. And then from there, uh, do some self-experimentation and tweaking to really find what gets you the best results over the long term. And it changes with time, which right. is, I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, I also want to talk about an interesting one that's slightly controversial, especially your stance may be a little controversial, and that's the cheat meal. Uh, a lot of uh, nutrition plans or diet recommendations that I've personally experimented with and also read about include the uh, concept of a cheat meal in it. And when I've implemented this into my experimentation, uh, during this cheat meal or cheat day even, um, I was like a kid in a candy shop with a $50 line of credit. And it was awesome in the moment or leading up to it. Um, but afterwards, I was never really sure if it was worth it, uh, though I could see in those plans that were presented how they fit in based on uh, the plan. So your stance may be a little different than that. Could you explain a little bit on your take on cheating or specifically the cheat meal or cheat day? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's... um. So when I, when I first started doing the coaching of, of people, you know, in the gym setting and then also more remotely, you would have folks who you would be 30 seconds into the conversation and they'd say, what's my cheat meal look like? You know, what's, what's the cheat parameters? And it was just incredibly important to them. And on the one hand, in the beginning of this process, it was kind of like, okay, this is a reasonable question. Like the... I'm recommending this kind of paleo approach and this guy or gal is wondering if they're ever going to have a chocolate chip cookie again in their life. And, and so it's a reasonable question, but almost inevitably the person who led with this question, they were going to be a huge pain in the ass. Like it, there was just <laughs> something weird going on there. And so the, the quote cheat deal is, is kind of interesting. Like I, I like getting into like the history of words and you know, where the etymology or whatever comes from. And, um, 
when you break apart the the word cheat, you know, you do the Webster's dictionary kind of definition, it means to gain an unfair advantage on on someone or something or you know, particularly at another's expense. So I was kind of like, okay, that's interesting. And then because I am a student of this kind of evolutionary biology perspective, I, I really feel like it's incredibly informative for starting the conversation. I started doing some research around notions of justice and cheating in all primates. And what's interesting is there are some really ingrained, deeply conserved uh, senses of justice and right and wrong within all primates, like from new world monkeys to chimpanzees to humans. And so it, it, and it is important because these social groups, if somebody is being victimized, it's really important that there is some justice metered out in, in those situations because otherwise it can create a lot of drama and strife and, and can actually spin out into uh, bigger um, issues. So that topic of cheating and the morality around it is really big. But when it gets applied to food, you eat food. You you put it in your <laughs> pie hole. You get a response. It, it could be good or bad, you know, from a physiological perspective. But there's no morality to it. Like, regardless of what nutritional approach you're you're following, whether it's paleo or vegan or macrobiotic or what have you, if you decide to have something that's off rails, you're not cheating anyone. I, and it's, people could say, "Well, you're cheating yourself." I, I don't see how you're gaining an unfair advantage even on yourself. It's just silly. So. It's a, a misuse of this word that is just super annoying and beyond the annoyance, it is setting people up for failure because if we attach the legitimate emotional connectivity to the term cheat, which should, like if you cheat on your wife, you cheat on your taxes, you should be nervous, you should be a little scared, there should be some drama there, you know, there's some really profound repercussions that could come down on you and so that's good wiring for you to be concerned about that. When you go off rails with your food, I mean, maybe you could argue that you could eat yourself into diabetes or an early grave or something like that, but this is a very different deal. So the whole terminology of cheating is just completely misplaced. But when people start thinking about it like that, then, you know, okay, they're doing their 30 day reset and they decide to have a bagel somewhere in that. And then they're like, oh my God, I cheated on my diet. And now I'm, I'm, I'm just gone. Like I'm off of it. And it's a all or nothing deal instead right. of just saying, well, okay, I'm one meal away from being back on track. So the the whole notion of, of like the cheat meal, and particularly the planned cheat meal is really concerning for me. I, I talk a lot about the, you know, clearly the neuroregulation of appetite, but also some things like drug addiction and porn addiction and some things like that. And like super normal stimuli getting a degree of stimulation in the brain that is so over the top that nothing else in the, the real world can really reach it. And when people are planning to, if you talk to people who are drug addicts, they will oftentimes relate that the planning of consuming the drug is almost better than the consumption of the drug. And what's happening in that whole process is you're getting this ramping up of dopamine. And interestingly, there's some interaction between um, ghrelin, which is a, a primary hunger stimulating neurotransmitter that's ramping up. And it literally makes us feel hungry for this substance, which is kind of interesting if you think about overeating and all that type of stuff and drug Definitely. addiction. But it's that planning process. You know, you're like, man, on Friday, I'm going to have the complete hookers and cocaine binge. 
and you've got a week of planning and stewing and noodling on it. And oftentimes the actual experience doesn't remotely live up to what the perception of it is. So you feel a letdown. It's basically like watching TV or social media, like you're just left wanting more. And, it, you know, not infrequently, that huge over the top experience necessitates another similar experience to just get you kind of sort of back to baseline, like going back to normal good food isn't really enough. Like it, it starts looking like cardboard. It's just not interesting. So the the cheat topic is is really fascinating to me. And it just seems like a huge quagmire that people get themselves into. My my preferred method for dealing with that is that, you know, if we if we eat three meals a day, seven days a week, that's 21 meals, how about like 19 of those meals are on point? And then two of the meals, you just kind of kick your heels up and do whatever. And instead of planning them out in advance, let it just pop up naturally. Like you're at a work function and there's some cheesecake there and you're like, man, I'm going to have some cheesecake. And it's, and it's not a big deal. And the reason why it's not a big deal is the previous 20 meals were on point. The next 20 meals are on point. So it doesn't matter in the, the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we're spending a bunch of time getting ourselves fired up about this planning process, Again, we're, we're setting up some neurochemistry that is really addictive in, in its nature and can be very difficult to decouple and, and unpack. You know, and in some ways, I can totally understand the notion behind the planned cheat meal. In some cases, it may make it easier in the short term to kind of stick to a strict eating plan if you know that you're going to have a reward at the end of the day or week, for example. Mm -hmm. But over the long term, my experience totally corroborates what you're saying. When it comes to neuroticism about food, I find that cycling strict eating with cheat meals kind of made me think way more about food all the time in general and have more cravings on average. I mean, it may kind of sound crazy to some people, but I've been able to get to a point where I rarely crave any junk at all and I'm very satisfied and just thoroughly enjoy pretty much all of my meals. So this kind of also relates to this abstainer versus moderator concept that you talk about in the book as well. And in a nutshell, people that are good, mm. quote, moderators can follow this eat in moderation advice while or eat this in moderation, like a specific uh, foods, for example, while people that are more, quote, abstainers are better off completely eliminating something because there's really no moderation to be had uh, for those folks. And and that is totally me. Um, there are some foods that I just can't eat a little bit of, whether it would be, uh, you know, whether it's a, a, quote, cheat food or even foods that have great ingredients like sweet potato chips uh, with coconut oil and sea salt, for example, which are so good. Um, if I buy those, I just cannot eat less than a whole bag. Right. And it doesn't matter what size the bag is. It could be five ounces or 50 pounds. You're going to eat the whole damn thing. Yeah, I'm the same way. And, and yeah, it, and you know, that abstainer versus moderator is interesting. That's some work that I, I learned about from Gretchen Rubin, who has written a number of really fascinating books and just a super talented woman. Um, but, you know, even that, there's caveats to it. You know, like with dark chocolate, I could kind of take it or leave it. But that, you know, sea salt and vinegar, sweet potato chip, like there's no off switch on that. And, and I think that people need to do some 
fiddling to discover where they are on that spectrum. And I, there's something that I mentioned in the book. And also I have a, like a 45 minute talk that I do around this whole wired to eat, um, topic, but I really make the point that when you look out at the mainstream medicine, uh, media, particularly the dietetics kind of story that comes out, the only thing that is considered disordered eating is limiting your food options. Like if you, you know, you could have the most garbage-esque diet and it's kind of like, okay, you don't eat well, but you're not a disordered eater. But if you say, okay, I'm going to do gluten-free paleo, bam, you're, you're orthorexic. You're a disordered eater. I'm going to do vegan. But funny enough, the vegan doesn't get labeled disordered eating as much as the low-carb stuff does. But um, again, going back to this neuroregulation of appetite, you could really make a very credible and scientifically defensible argument that some degree of palate limitation is requisite to navigating the modern food world. Like you, you can maybe do some salty, fatty stuff, or you can do some crunchy, sweeter stuff, but you can't do the combo. It's the combo that gets us into, into a mess. And it's particularly mm-hmm. when you can stack the combo from one thing to the another, to another, and I have a pretty cool example of that in the book where there's a guy, Adam Rickman, who's kind of famous for his show Man vs. Food, and he would do these crazy eating challenges, and one of them, and I saw this thing like six years ago, and it just totally stuck with me, and I knew I would use it at some point, and then I've, I've mentioned it in the book, but he does what's called the Kitchen Sink Ice Cream Sunday Challenge, and basically he needs to eat an eight-pound ice cream sundae the thing is served in a and literally in a kitchen sink, and the guy starts eating this Sunday. And I don't think anybody would argue that you know ice cream Sundays don't taste good, but he gets maybe a third of the way through, and he just totally bogs down. Um, he actually there's video where he's like gagging, you know, trying to get another bite of this food down. And what he does is crazy, and it flies in the face of what dietitians would generally tell us. He orders a plate of extra salty, extra crunchy French fries. And he starts nibbling the French fries and then taking a bite of ice cream and nibbling the French fries and taking a bite of ice cream. And this guy is able to complete the ice cream challenge that he would have failed at, that he would have probably thrown up from by eating more food in the form of the French fries. And it's probably about 1,500 calories additionally in the French fries that he eats. But, you know, the ice cream is per the, the sweet, creamy, you know, texture, cold texture of the ice cream is perfectly countered with this salty, crunchy, savory element from the French fries. And what it does is it's able to bypass the neuroregulation of appetite. The palate fatigue that sets in from eating this massive amount of ice cream is basically reset by eating those French fries. And so, you you know, having an understanding of that story, um, you really, you know, limiting palate options, even on a cyclical level, like some people like cyclic low-carb diets, And there's some thought that that will allow you, you know, some days you can have a higher carb intake and some days you enjoy the lower carb options. And there's probably some some wisdom in that story. But still, to some degree, you've got to limit those palate options or you're going to get yourself into some deep trouble. Yeah, that's just insane. And it's it's a great example of uh, of that topic in general, you know, a more kind of real world uh, examples that folks might not expect that you find uh, added sugar to a lot of spicy or salty dishes because not only does it um, 
cut the spice uh, or the saltiness, but you're able to add more of all of the flavors when you combine them like that. Um, and you're able to to have a, a much richer food experience um, and eat more of it. And this example, uh, we had a cooking class in Thailand where we were making a spicy curry dish and we added a bunch of sugar. And I, I had asked the um, instructor why why add so much sugar if this is going to be kind of a salty, spicy focused dish. And that was exactly what she explained. She said, oh, but by adding sugar in, you cut some of the spice and allow to put more of all of the different flavors in. And it also just makes the brain kind of fire on all cylinders and really like enhances the richness of the dish. So um, they, it's a pretty typical practice there to load up a, a dish like a, a spicy uh, rice uh, curry that has a bunch of sugar in it. Again, kind of comes back to those sweet potato chips. It's mm-hmm. um, That's actually, I just wanted to highlight another thing that's kind of changed since your original book to this book is that uh, even if folks are familiar with a paleo template, um, that there's a lot of options now that fit into that template um, at a basic level that kind of still trigger these uh, neuroregulation of appetite mistakes, right. uh, such as these sweet potato chips, which I... Right. I love them and occasionally do uh, still buy them, but I can't just keep them in my house, like uh, because they'll be gone within a day or two, no matter no matter if I wanted to eat them or not. Right. Um, right. And so, yeah, that that's powerful. Um, so let's talk a little bit about more some of that uh, personalized nutrition. We we already kind of covered it, but I know that it kind of has its own title, personalized nutrition. Um, and so basically what's the rundown, uh, of that? Yeah. You know, there were some really good research that came out of Israel, maybe two years ago, two and a half years ago. And there was a, a research group that hooked up, a, I believe like 800 people in the initial study with a continuous blood glucose monitor. So this thing gets slapped on the skin. It has a probe that goes transdermal and once a minute checks blood glucose levels And these people had a full genetic profile done. They had a gut microbiome sequencing done. They had really extensive blood work. And then they started feeding these folks just a different battery of meals and checking what the blood glucose response was. They would record kind of subjective measures of how they felt in between meals. And what was really interesting is that there really wasn't a consistent theme across the board with this. Like some foods like white rice or white potatoes, didn't uniformly cause a really high blood glucose response. And some foods like hummus, which, you know, I'm, I'm a paleo guy, but, it, it, you know, hummus is like protein and fat, basically, and a bunch of fiber. Like the mm-hmm. carbohydrate amount is very, very modest. But some people, like about 50% of the folks tested, had a really remarkably high blood glucose response, much higher than what you would expect from from just general, you know, carbohydrate content. And although they didn't test specifically for this in talking to the folks running this study, I asked them if they thought that these kind of wacky high blood glucose responses could be a a consequence of some food intolerances. So it causes a stress response and then that stress causes a release of glucose out of the liver. And they're like, yeah, almost certainly like the glucose has got to come from somewhere. It didn't come from the food, so it had to come from the liver. And so there you go. And uh, but what this really made clear 
is that from person to person, there's massive variation in how folks respond to a given meal. And also that story can change over the course of time. Like if you start eating in a way that keeps your blood glucose levels more normalized, it tends to make both your insulin sensitivity better and also your gut microbiome healthier, which then tends to buy you a little more latitude. And so it's a, it's a bit of a dynamic and changing process. So that, that's where this idea of a real concrete need for a path to personalized nutrition where we use this ancestral health template as a starting place, but then we find out what the individual specifics are for each person. Yeah, and that's, like I said, that that type of stuff is just what's going to resonate so much with this community because I'm just coming from the opposite direction, coming from the, you know, utilizing kind of some uh, clever uses of technology that are cheap and affordable or easy to uh, use and getting a few key measurements, not not overdoing it and getting neurotic with all the quantification stuff, but then kind of using that to uh, justify or measure improvements had from kind of that ancestral health framework, like you we were just saying. Right. And it, so you mentioned kind of in the book um, that there are folks who have a seemingly genetic freak advantage when it comes to like uh, pretty much anything is like they can eat pizza and ice cream and go deadlift 600 pounds and then run for 10 hours or something. And, um, Obviously, that's all an uh, exaggeration, but you talk about how customizing your diet and the other kind of pillars that we will talk about eventually is um, that you can actually achieve health or performance that's just as good, if not better, than a, a genetic freak. So kind of why, why, you know, can you explain that a little more? Yeah, you know, and I mean, there's caveats to that. Like I just did a, a jujitsu seminar and there were these two I call them kids, like they're mid-20s, but they're kids compared to myself now. But uh, uh, two brothers, and these guys are just jacked and shredded. I mean, like, literally 4 to 6% body fat. This is the way they've been their whole life. They lift weights a little bit. They do a little bit of gymnastics and tumbling. But, I mean, they are just absolute specimens. And their diets are pretty appalling. Like, they, they, they <laughs> eat absolutely horrifically they're amazing at jujitsu, um, you know, but it, what what's interesting there, it's even though their diets are poor, there is some point at which I could worsen their diet in a way that it would make them sick. And the way it would make them sick is they start overeating total calories and then we start getting insulin resistance and inflammation and body fat gain. Like there's a way to break even those guys. Mm -hmm. But at the level that they're consuming right now, I'll guarantee you, even their, their very poor intake of like, you know, Domino's pizza or something like that, they're getting a barely perceptible blood glucose response off these things. Like they still look metabolically healthy because they are. Whereas for me, that that pizza or even, you know, a gluten-free analog because the I probably wouldn't uh, actually absorb much out of a regular pizza because I would be blasting it out the, the tail end <laughs> so rapidly, but... um you know, for me, those dense carbohydrate sources really spike my blood glucose. And even though some folks say that it's only about calories, there is a reality that the folks who have a more favorable hormonal response to the calories they consume, this is the difference between partitioning it into muscle and lean body mass versus fat. And, and, uh, and this is an un unassailable story. So, you know, both the hormonal 
uh, story is true and also the calorie story is true but there's there's a caveat or a, or a nuance within that so for me i didn't pull the genetic lottery I didn't get the epigenetic lottery. I, I was vaginally birthed, but I wasn't breastfed. I was exposed to antibiotics a ton in my youth. I was on tetracycline from the age of 13 to like 25 due to um, acne, which, uh, you know, looking back, it's like, oh man, like I'm lucky I have any gut microbiome left. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. But so I'm in a situation where for a variety of reasons, my gut microbiome isn't as healthy as what I would like, which tends to make some pro-inflammatory state and insulin resistance. And so what I need to do is figure out a way of eating so that my blood glucose response at a given caloric level looks the way that these two brothers look when they eat their Domino's pizza. And if I do that, now I'm not quite as lean as these guys and I'm not quite as shredded and jacked, but for a 45-year-old guy, I'm below 10% body fat levels. I have good strength, good, good cardio, good recovery. And so what I've done is modified my epigenetic environment, the signaling that I get via sleep and gut microbiome and food so that it is as best as I can emulates the hormonal profile that we would see in these genetically lucky individuals. And, you know, there are a couple things to consider with that as well. Often these, quote, genetic freak types are young. And without harping mm -hmm. too much on that concept, for most people, youth is finite. And without some kind of consideration, that seemingly uh, natural advantage can kind of fade out especially with the accumulation of stress over time, whether that be from increasing job or financial or family responsibilities and other stressors over time. But there's also big potential that the young, hard-charging athletic type could actually perform or recover better if they took a deeper look at nutrition and other factors. Um, but it is, it, it's honestly, it's hard enough to get folks who are sick and motivated to overcome the challenges of a lifestyle change, much less someone who's young and fit and doesn't see the damage yet. Right, right. That kind of leads me into another uh, interesting area. And I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that um, there's a lot of psychology too involved in change in general, but uh, specifically uh, changing diet seems to be like, like I think you mentioned, it's akin to like try to change somebody's religion or their political stance. Um, and I'm going to push on you a little bit here. At the beginning of the book, you mentioned morality and kind of a quote, healthy relationship with food. And you say a couple little uh, things about it right at the beginning. And I thought for a minute that was going to be the complete coverage of the topic. And I was a little bit concerned about what folks might take away from that. And then, bam, later in the book, you really dive a lot deeper into it in later chapters. Um, and I was, I was like, okay, now this all kind of is coming back around and makes a lot of sense. Can you give folks a rundown of why your experience with kind of, quote, a healthy food relationship is different than uh, mainstream media and medical establishments? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's an it's it, it's an outgrowth or, or the, the cheating topic is related to this. Like it's some of these um, kind of folk wisdom ideas that we're told um, you need a healthy relationship with food. And man, it just seems like so warm and snuggly with our inner childs and it seems to make a lot of sense and it, it, similar to working with folks over the course of time who would come to me and say when's my cheat meal and like they ended up being 
really problematic. The folks who would inform me one way or the other that they were endeavoring towards a healthy relationship with food. Again, on the surface, it's like, okay, that's that's reasonable and I'm going to support you in this process. But what I found is this searching for the healthy relationship with food was like trying to calculate the final decimal point of pi. It just went on and on <laughs> and on. And it, it was infinite. It never got anywhere. And you were completely embroiled in this process and nothing was ever really changing. And uh, so what, you know, the... And this relates back to a guy that I, I worked with um, and, and I talk about him in the book. He's an incredibly successful individual, billionaire net, net worth. And I was his like strength coach and nutrition bitch, I guess, for, for a period of time. <laughs> I was supposed to like help this guy manage his food and his, his workouts and all this and traveled around the world with him. And uh, one day I was um, cruising through the, the house and they smelled something. And I'm like, oh, B, that smells like donuts. And so I went and knocked on his, his office door. And sure enough, he's sitting there eating a bag of donuts. And I'm like, where did those come from? Because what I had done is cleaned out the pantry and stocked it with the stuff that we were supposed to have and talked to all the chefs that they were supposed to cook this and not cook that. And, you know, here's our parameters. And so the story that emerged was that he had paid some of the house staff to go to Krispy Kreme, get a dozen donuts, drive the donuts to a, a point at the corner of the security fence, throw the bag over. Somebody else was waiting there to intercept it and then brought him the donuts. And I'm like, hey, man, you're really not making my job very easy here. And he's, he said, it's not my job to make your job easy. You know, and like, Mission impossible. Yeah, he, he was really enjoying this spy versus spy kind of deal. So then I went to his wife and said, okay, I need a budget for like counter espionage, basically. Like whatever your husband pays these people, I need to pay him more. And this went on for a while. And then eventually he just said, anybody that doesn't do what I tell him to do, I'm just going to fire you. And so what this guy had done is amassed an enormous amount of wealth and power, but he was super isolated. And what he did is he used food as kind of a palliative experience for his emotional stuff. And then he used money and power as a way of keeping people effectively at arm's length and never really being vulnerable. But it, it, this, this stuff went on for a long time. And I mean, I was getting paid really, really well to work with this guy, but I was getting pretty frustrated and it, it really wasn't actually that gratifying for me to just do this, uh, spy versus spy cat, cat and mouse deal. And so one day I was chatting with him because I had had a little bit of an insight that I thought I was onto something. And then just kind of out of nowhere, I said, so who didn't love you? And he like looked at me. It was like he had been zapped. He's like, what are you saying? And I said, who didn't love you? Like all this stuff isn't about food. It's about something else. Like you keep your family at arm's length. You keep your employees at arm's length. You control everybody in this manipulative way. None of this is about the food. It's about something else. And it's because somebody didn't love you. And who was it? And this, he's a big dude. And I thought he was going to kill me. Like he was so <laughs> mad it was a little bit reminiscent of the whole like uh, goodwill hunting scene, you know, and, mm. and uh, but eventually the guy actually breaks down and he's crying and he, he's basically, uh, you know, re relates this story that both of his parents were hard chargers and super career driven and they largely emotionally abandoned him. And uh, he was more or less raised by his nanny and the nanny felt horrible. This uh, precocious, um, probably genius kid had been emotionally abandoned and so what she did is started cooking these really amazing meals and they would hang out and fix the meals together and sing and play. And uh, he got love and he got the love attached to the food. 
And so all of this stuff, like he, and he was one of these primary people that was, you know, talking about, I need to figure out a healthy relationship with food. And I was like, it's got nothing to do with food. It's got everything to do with your sense of abandonment and uh, the uh, issues that you have around intimacy with other people. And I told him, I'm like, as of today, I'm no longer working with you. You need to go work with a therapist who is going to help you get reconnected with the people around you. And you need to understand this isn't about food. The food is a symptom. It's not the cause. And you need to get some work done in that. And it was a rough deal. Like yeah. it, it was rough for me because I was getting paid super well. But, you know, interestingly, circling back to the cheating story, I knew I didn't have the skill set to help this guy. But I knew he desperately needed help. And for me to continue working with him would have been cheating him. And it would have been perpetuating his suffering, the suffering of his family. So morally, that was a no-go for me. I couldn't do that. Even though it was painful for me on a financial level, I had to do that from a moral standpoint. And then for him, this had nothing to do with the food. Like this guy would eat himself into near diabetic comas at times. Uh, but... It had nothing to do with the food. It had to do with his relationships. And he nearly went through a divorce. He had a pretty rough time. But now he's super tight with his wife, super tight with his kids. He has a better relationship with his his uh, employees and staff. And I mean, he can still be a prick at times, but he's a really different person. And I think that most people are kind of savvy to this idea that um, treating symptoms is not particularly helpful. And Focusing on the food specifically was treating symptoms in this guy. That wasn't the issue. And for the vast majority of people, and I, I would say just about down to a single person, when they say they're looking at trying to find a healthy relationship with food, it has nothing to do with food. It has to do with intimacy and vulnerability. And at some point, the individual's been hurt. And, and this stuff sounds like super, you know, woo-woo, over-the-top, like inner child emotional stuff. And I have the, um, the emotional sophistication of like a Vulcan. So this was all really hard won stuff for me. I was like, really? Like, this is what's going on, but this is my experience of this. And then it started making sense also when I thought about what does the mainstream do with different things? They give us messages that basically hamstring us and leave us vulnerable and perpetuate our need on these institutions. And so what we hear out of modern medicine and dietetics and the media is all this claptrap about the need for a healthy relationship with food. And again, it's great for what they are promulgating because it guarantees you are going to be a subject of that process and you're never going to find a moment of liberation because you're never going to address the underlying issues that are actually driving that, that potentially disordered eating situation. But it's really not about the food. It's about something else. Wow. Yeah, that's an incredibly powerful notion and example. Um, I can see why he'd react with anger at first. I mean, nobody wants to hear that there might be a deeper problem at an emotional or psychological level that diet and physical health problems might just be a symptom of. Um, it's also interesting to hear that having a lot of money doesn't necessarily make the journey of getting your health under control any easier. Um, in fact, this guy was spending a lot of money on you, um, more likely to convince himself and others that he's trying when in reality it doesn't sound like he wanted to change at all. But if he's paying big money, 
it creates the appearance that he's doing something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like how many people much prefer to read about exercises than actually to just go out and exercise. And, you know, I'm no exception to that. While I do actually enjoy most of the exercise that I do now, I used to much prefer to just read about it rather than do it. And it's important to note that um, doing something like spending a bunch of money or this example uh, to create the appearance of doing something is not just for outward appearance. Right. It's also kind of a self-justification. In fact, that's probably the deeper root of it. And uh, the situation that you've shared is just a powerful example for coaches or health practitioners as well. If you're listening to this and you have clients, it's it's indeed hard to turn down a client's payments. But if you're just helping them stay in the hamster wheel, so to speak, and not really pushing them towards the root cause of whatever issue that is apparent, um, there are probably, you know, some tough moral issues to think about with that. Right. And I, I mean, it's a very non-popular discussion. Like I have people angry at me about this and I, I don't present it like a jerk, but you know, if, if this is something that people have been fiddling with for years on end and there's just no resolution in sight and there's been no forward progress, then a, the crazy notion that I'm throwing out there is that maybe it's not specifically about the food. Maybe the food is a symptom and maybe we need to shift gears and look at, at a deeper, earlier level with this stuff. That's my my crazy used car salesman pitch on that. Yeah, and it, and you do talk about, though, in the book, how it is kind of, um, a, it's a closed loop, so to speak, in the sense that um, going off the rails with sleep, diet, uh, exercise and community, like you said uh, in the example with this man, uh, he was missing some of those other aspects and he was kind of, uh, it was exacerbating his relationship with food, so to speak. Um, so yeah, there's like, uh, it all kind of feeds off of back and forth off itself. And I just want to also mention to folks that, like you also said earlier, is it doesn't always manifest as an eating problem, so to speak. Like the similar psychology can manifest uh, in drug use or alcoholism or, um, you know, gambling, gambling, TV. Uh, you know, I don't want to go too far on TV because lots of folks like that. But, um, <laughs> um, but you know, there's a whole host of ways that this stuff can manifest. Um, and it's all kind of, got similar roots, so to speak, um, at least what we've just talked about. Um, so so anyway, so writing a book like this, a, a self-help book, so to speak, or at least a book that helps you help yourself, is extremely difficult if you actually want to help a wide range of people in both the short and the long term. Right. Um, tons of books focus on short-term gains, or a very specific goal, like 10 pounds lost or something like that. Um, is Wired to Eat just a weight loss book, or who is it actually for? No, I mean, and that, that was some of the, uh, the challenge, both for myself and my publisher, because they couldn't make heads or tails about what I was doing, because we had this seven-day carb test and the 30-day reset, but then I'm also detailing how 
autoimmune disease and neurodegenerative diseases and cardiovascular disease all come about. And I managed to dovetail all this stuff together. And I, I talk a, a smidge about athletic performance, but I mean, that that's really not what I, what, you know, my main deal. So, I mean, literally that gets like a paragraph or two of, of treatment, but within the context of the overall book, like you could, you could read between the lines and put some stuff there, but you know, to sell a book like this, you've got, you just have to have a weight loss orientation or it becomes these kind of niche, um, science G whiz books that, that almost nobody will, will take a look at. And there is kind of a reality that you can make a pretty credible argument that this overconsumption of food is, you know, hormonally driving problems and also calorically driving problems. And so if we, you know, if we orient things towards a healthy, long-term maintenance, uh, you know, fat loss, weight loss approach that we're going to tick a bunch of boxes along the way. Like we're not just going to lose weight and then be horrifically unhealthy at the end of this, not the way that we're, we're doing it. So yeah, I mean, it's a big rangy book. It's over 400 pages, which again, made my publishers absolutely crazy. Like they really (laughs) desperately wanted like seven days to paleo abs. And I, I said, that's probably a great book and I'm <laughs> definitely not the right person to write it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it, it, and again, if I've got any maybe comparative advantage, I think I'm pretty good at synthesis and I see a lot of connectivity between things. And so I'm able to link autoimmunity and neurodegenerative disease with, the weight loss experience and all tie it back into the neuroregulation of appetite. So, I mean, it, it ends up, there's not too many people that they wouldn't get a significant amount out of this. Like if you're a, a elite level CrossFit games person and you're trying to figure out what the next tweak is to get another couple of percentage points out of your performance, there might be some better options there. But you know, if you are that CrossFit games competitor and you coach people, then you're going to learn a ton about, you know, the, what's going on under the hood with the people that you're coaching. Yeah. And, it, you know, just to reiterate, I, I wrote a couple notes down because I wanted to also just add for folks like, uh, you know, I, I wanted to hear your opinion and I want to give my opinion so folks can have two different ones. And what I kind of took away is that Wired to Eat kind of takes you from the ground up and it lays enough foundational knowledge for the folks who are new to kind of an ancestral health journey or personalized nutrition, uh, for example. It gives those folks the ability to understand what the heck that they're actually doing uh, without overloading them. And then for the self-experimenters or coaches or even health practitioners, it really gives you the complete picture and fills in a lot of the gaps. And I like that you use the word synthesis. Um, I've been personally utilizing a framework that really agrees with the framework presented in Wired to Eat since your first book. And, um, and I've been kind of refining it over the years through experimentation and additional research and, and all this stuff. But now all of that's kind of that refining and optimization is built right into Wired to Eat. So it like ties everything together. It, for me personally, it gives me the language and structure to kind of better help myself or to help others even. And it uh, it just really kind of rounds out and completes the big picture addressing what 
both the whys and the hows. That was a much better explanation than I gave. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you live and breathe this stuff every day and you've got a lot and I'm kind of coming in like fresh, fresh eyes on the scene. Proximity Uh, bias can be a disaster sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, that's what I took away from it. And I, I, but I do, I like the word synthesis that you use because that is, that does show through that that is exactly what you're doing. You're synthesizing a lot of really important points and making it presentable for a pretty wide range of uh, backgrounds. Um, so let's see what what I've got here. I, I wrote a couple bullets down. Um, one of those was, you know, how does the paleo diet fit into the framework? I think we covered some of that, but maybe you can give a couple more bullets about, because it might be not entirely clear yet, does the paleo diet play a role in the framework of Wired to Eat? Yeah, it definitely does. Like this is largely where I start our 30-day reset. And, you know, people may be like, wah, 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 wah. Like, I, I don't know if I really want to do that again. And that's fine. But seeing the results that came out of this um, Reno risk assessment program, like I'm, I'm just convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is incredibly powerful you know, you almost look at it like an operating system. Like, how do you want to run your your hardware? Like, what software do you want running on it? Do you want something that's really amazing and optimized and, and slick and gives you multitudes of benefits? Or do you, do you want to be fighting against it? And starting with this ancestral health template is, is just incredibly powerful, particularly when we then don't turn it into religious doctrine. We remain open to the potential that... Um, we've got more latitude that we may even get more benefit from, you know, playing with amounts and types of carbohydrate and whatnot via the uh, seven-day carb test. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, that anti-inflammatory paleo-type diet is where we start the conversation, but it's not where we end it. Yeah, and I think that's kind of, you know, the way it's presented is a lot more digestible. The first book was awesome as well, but... Like you said, for folks that kind of come at this with like, oh, you know, it's, I've heard about that and stuff. The way that you kind of lay it all out there is much clearer about addressing some of those off the wall kind of concerns that once you get into it, don't seem that bad. Right. And um, so, yeah, that fits in nicely. And then another kind of area of of controversy, uh, which actually some of our most listened to podcasts have been on these topics, is the high carb, low fat versus high fat, low carb. And it's a good thing you've been practicing your Brazilian jiu-jitsu um, so you can kind of protect yourself when folks come after you. But what is your, right. what's your take on this uh, topic? You know, again, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, Somebody who has a great hormonal response, they're insulin sensitive, they have a healthy gut, they may eat, quote, high carb, but their metabolic profile, the way that their hormones respond, look the way that I look when I eat low carb. And so, you you know, we get caught up on the inputs and we forget that there may be different outputs waiting on the other side of that, that metabolic veil, you know? And so instead of making it doctrinal about you know, uh, uh, which is the one perfect macronutrient to rule them all, just understanding that there may be different keys to the kingdom for for each one of us. And so 
Um, again, we have examples of both of these approaches, higher carb and lower carb, working and, and working at, at just really banal stuff of helping somebody lose body fat and helping people to win Olympic gold medals. So there's a, a pretty good spectrum within this story, and we just need to be open to the potential that different folks are going to respond differently. And those folks may respond differently at different time points in their life. Like you may have that really um, genetically talented, insulin sensitive person, and then they become a firefighter and they're on, you know, some night shift. And then they have their first kid or two, which starts further impacting their sleep. And that formerly insulin sensitive person isn't insulin sensitive anymore, largely due to epigenetic factors from sleep and circadian rhythm, but it's still, now they're in a situation where uh, uh, they need to modify the amount of carbohydrate they eat, or they're going to face some metabolic problems. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're in a second here, we're going to jump into the the seven-day carb test and some other uh, topics related to that, but kind of keeping along the same vein, you talk about ketosis and fasting as well. And fasting, I seem to handle pretty well and I practice it intermittently. Um, But I've had trouble with ketogenic diets myself personally in the past. And uh, but that being said, guests of the show have been able to compete in world championships with on a ketogenic diet. Um, And the route you present in Wired to Eat helped me understand a bit more about why I might have run into trouble kind of when attempting nutritional ketosis specifically in the past. Uh, Can you just share with folks a little about the benefits and kind of potential pitfalls of ketosis and fasting? Yeah. So I I put that in the last chapter of the book. It's called Hammers, Drills, and Ketosis, the one tool your doctor is never going to use or something to that effect. And um, fortunately, that story is changing. We do have more healthcare practitioners that are savvy to the utility of ketosis and fasting, but it's really interesting. Like these are some of the most fundamental natural states within biology, particularly for humans. And they're regarded like, like they're depleted uranium. Like it's kind of crazy how over the top the response is. And, um, you know, without getting into the physiology of, of ketosis overly, but it's basically a state where we can, normalize the energy needs for our brain. If we're consuming carbohydrates consistently, the brain will tend to run off of glucose. But if we're in a fasted state or a hypocaloric state, we need to find an energy source that is consistent and stable to keep the brain happy. And although uh, even lean people store lots of body fat, um, it's difficult to get that, that fat mobilized in the brain. But if we convert the, the fats into ketone bodies, they are effectively water-soluble fats, for for lack of a better term, and they can directly feed the the neurons in the brain, and you can shift up to 70, maybe even 80% of the, the brain's glucose need over to ketones. And this is really important for extended periods of time when we wouldn't eat, which is probably a really normal part of our ancestral past. And there appears to be some really interesting genetic and epigenetic benefits here where the state of fasting or ketosis turns on cellular stress genes, which um, cause protein recycling. It causes apoptosis of abnormal cells, seems to potentially cause some beneficial effects with regards to cancer and tumors, basically causing these things to, to spontaneously die. It doesn't do it in all cancers, but it seems to do it in a 
quite a number of them. So this is kind of a, a reset button that was potentially programmed in as part of our evolutionary biology, just these intermittent periods of dipping into and out of ketosis. And now because of the ubiquity of food that we have, we eat three meals a day. We, we can't even, you know, um, imagine the, the notion of going a day or two without eating for, for most people. We never have these reset moments. We never have these downtimes. And it's potential. The, the potential here is that we're sending a type of signal to the, to our body, to our physiology, to our genetics that is pathological. It, it's just all on, it's all growth and it's never maintenance, which that maintenance is, is when we shift into that, that ketosis or fasting state. So it, 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 I'm not sure if you want to go into some other elements of it, but you know, that's the kind of gist with this. And, and, uh, you would be hard pressed to find someone who is more passionate about ketosis and fasting than I am. But I'm one of those weird people that even though I think it's an amazing tool, it's a massively underutilized tool. It's not necessarily the appropriate tool for everybody under all circumstances. Right. Yeah, that's challenging. And it's kind of like you said in the early days when you first got into all of this stuff, that a ketogenic and low carb diet was sort of your introduction to all these topics. And it, it seemed like, you know, that might be the solution for everyone, but that's obviously evolved with time and um, right. especially as you started working with more and more people. So just to highlight for folks, there are a few nutritional plans outlined in the book for different circumstances. So there's an autoimmune friendly version of the 30 day reset, which I've pulled some uh, information from since I have some tendencies in that uh, area. And there's also two different approaches to a ketogenic diet that are outlined as tools for specific situations. So one's the transitional ketogenic diet and the other is full-on nutritional ketosis. And um, listeners have probably heard on another episode that I struggled a bit when I dove straight into a nutritional ketosis plan in the past. And so the next time I kind of tinker with a ketogenic diet, I'm going to use this transitional ketogenic plan that's outlined in the book first. Um, so, okay. One thing I'm really excited to share with the audience is the seven-day carb test, which is on the cover of the book, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So I think this test will really resonate with the listeners since it's simple, quantifiable, and it can actually kind of put some objectivity in personalizing your nutrition. Um, so if you're listening, Rob gave me the thumbs up before the show to go ahead and share with you how to perform the seven-day carb test and what you'll be looking for when you do it. Um, first, Rob, this should be done after the 30-day reset, Correct. Correct. And the whole point is to help determine exactly which carbs work best for you, correct? Exactly. Yep. Yep. And this part will sound really familiar to the listeners. I love the recommendation that you make the test easier and more meaningful by doing it first thing in the morning. Um, so as with HRV measurements, you can eliminate a lot of the variables and acute stressors that occur throughout the day, and you can really increase the meaningfulness of the testing by making it more repeatable. So um, good call on that one. Oh, thanks. Thanks. A little bit of my scientific method came through. Yeah, thanks. Okay, Rob. So you can probably zone out a little bit here or get some water or something for a minute while I outline how to do this for the listeners. Um, so first 
first, to perform the test, you'll want to consume 50 net grams from a single carb source. That's 50 net grams of carbs from a single carb source first thing in the morning, and then simply test blood glucose two hours afterward with an inexpensive and readily available glucometer that you'll be able to find. Rob actually has links to it um, and the ones that he recommends. Um, And boom, that's it. Um, So I'll share with you how you can make it more complicated in a bit. But basically, you'll be looking to see if two hours after you eat 50 net grams of carbs from single source, if your body is able to regulate blood sugar back into a healthy range. And you'll the range you'll aim for at the two-hour mark is between 90 to 115 milligrams per deciliter if you're in the U.S. or 5 to 6.4 millimoles per liter in most other countries. And um, I'll post target thresholds and conversion charts and some of my personal results on the show notes page over at EliteHRV.com slash podcast if you want to over there and compare uh, some notes. But uh, so if your blood glucose is over 115 after two hours, then that carb source may not be agreeable to you. And you'll want to confirm that by having the amount of net carbs to 25 grams and testing it again on another day to see if a smaller amount of that carb source is more tolerable. Um, so in the book, there's some details about why these this range is particularly important, what you should and shouldn't do during the test to make sure that the results are still uh, are even more meaningful, and also some charts to show target quantities of various types of carbohydrates that you'll likely want to test, because it's not 50 grams of the food itself; it's 50 net grams of the carb uh, amount. And I tested a variety of carb sources, some that I consume more often than others. Um, And interestingly, bananas, plain white rice, and lentils all seem to be fine. But sweet potatoes, which many consider to be like a superfood of sorts, don't seem to be all that favorable for me in high quantities. And in the initial test for uh, those my blood glucose came in at the 130 mark around two hours. Um, though in the retest, with when I did half the amount, um, I came in right at the 115, which is you know the upper threshold. So uh, this kind of corroborates the subjective feeling that I've been having towards sweet potatoes over time, actually, uh, which is that I tend to do better with them in smaller quantities. So granted, I'm going to test this again since I do enjoy sweet potatoes and uh, also I'm not really a one-time tester type. (laughs) Right, right, which is smart, which is super smart. Now a bit about um, how to make this a little more complicated, but it may be useful if you're doing this test and you're getting some atypical results. Uh, I recommend a pre-meal baseline glucose spot check just to get an idea of your fasted starting point. Again, that's optional, but I think it's useful. So my routine would be wake up, use the toilet, sip a bit of water, measure my HRV, spot check my fasted blood glucose before eating anything, um, but after the HRV, and eat the carbs that I set aside the night before for the ease, kind of make it easier on yourself, and then only consume water for the rest of the test. 
and then go about your day until the next blood glucose check. So, uh, but my wife had an interesting result with bananas and um, just to highlight, she tested several things, but at the two hour mark, her blood glucose was actually 20 points lower than her initial fasting blood glucose. And granted, we, we don't normally eat just carbs for breakfast and we're probably fairly insulin sensitive. So, um, you know, it may be different for different circumstances, but I was curious. So I took the test a little bit further, um, and I sacrificed myself for the greater good, yes, and um, went and found the healthiest looking waffles that I could find at the store. You know, ancient grains, gluten-free, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, many folks eat a bolus of carbs for breakfast, and that's often what we're taught to do even. But we around here don't normally don't do that and we also never eat waffles for breakfast so um it just was a uh, interesting test and it it also kind of uh the test put numbers to why i don't eat waffles for breakfast and why perhaps others may uh, choose not to also so my fasted check before the test was uh 86 uh my blood glucose was 86 beforehand and I added in an extra check at the one hour mark after eating them, which came in at a whopping 159. But by the two hour mark, I was already down to 76, which was, you know, below my initial fasted test. And uh, this is where I love the fact that you tell readers to pay attention to subjective markers as well, which really resonates with how we tell folks to use HRV to kind of help quantify and become aware of your subjective and intuitive signaling as well. So after this test and all day long, I had low energy, I was hungry, and I just kind of felt like I had the taste of Skittles in my mouth. <laughs> right. And, you know, I had I had waffled on whether or not to do the one-point time, the one-hour time index or the two-hour time index or both, and there's arguments left, right, and center for that. Like, uh, because you can end up in these situations like this, you know, again, um, the, you know, you have like the best testing you could do, and then you have the best testing that you can get people to do. And, and so there's mm -hmm. trade-offs with all that, but what you're describing sounds a lot like some re reactive hypoglycemia where the blood sugar was quite high. It fell effectively by half. And then you felt like crap afterwards, which isn't, surprising and i have experienced a, a similar you know kind of uh blood sugar peak blood sugar trough um but you know in the strict rules of what i lay out in the book it would look like you're you're doing okay with the waffles because you were below a 115 milligram per deciliter at the two hour point but then that subjective measure was like <laughs> no I, I i feel terrible now so that you know there's something else going on so even though you try to make this stuff as binary as possible it, it's uh it it's a, a big you know mapping surface that you need to think about instead of just like a right wrong answer yeah and you know also i was purposefully trying a, a bunch of different things that i i don't even normally do so right you know um to me also like i kind of felt the same way <clears throat> Um, that kind of hypoglycemic response after uh, doing something which that I never do, which is this kind of refined uh, 
carbohydrate spike. By the way, of all the tests I did, the waffles were the easiest to do, to, to actually like consume the quantity. Shocker. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because uh, for, of course, the nerd that I am, I, I wrote down and logged all of my subjective feelings of um, how easy it was to eat different very uh, carbs and what I was feeling before and afterwards. And, and the waffles, yeah, I, uh, it, was the, I, it was the easiest. Put them down with no problem. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do a little um, uh, honest a little forthcoming with what's going on in the background with the way the book was put together. Um, I present things as if, Hey, we don't know how you're going to respond. Everybody's different. Who knows? Maybe you can eat carbs all the time. And um, it's kind of a lie. Um, The way that I set it all up, people are going to have the experience that you have. You know, again, there will be a few people, I don't know, 10 out of a hundred, five out of a hundred, that are legitimately insulin sensitive and they can, they can handle that, that more dense refined carbohydrate and just kind of motor along. But a massive number of people are going to feel great on that 30 day reset. They're going to tinker with the seven day carb test and they're going to realize, wow, like white rice or this or that, you know, whatever the particular trigger items are for them individually are problematic. And, but the difference is, um, when I tell people don't eat this, then they, you get all kinds of pushback and there's drama and, you know, you're overly restrictive. Whereas if you give people some guidelines to play with both subjective and objective, and then if they actually play, you know, if they honor those, those guidelines, then they're going to arrive at, at some stuff that's really not that much different than what that initial 30 days was with regards to amounts and composition of carbohydrate, but it'll be their experience instead of me just coaching them to that point. Yeah. And that, that's important. I mean, I I don't think anyone would argue that it's much more effective when you come to a realization on your own than when somebody tells you this is how it should be. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So two, uh, kind of just rapid fire little questions. Um, my wife Alyssa is petite and should she adjust the target grams for those effective carbs? And I know we don't want to make this overly complicated, but I just know that this question might come up. Um, she's fairly petite, uh, for that 50 grams of carbs, a lot of the sources were just really challenging to get that down. Yeah, you know, I, um, I had debated on that. And in the book, I mentioned that if you're a larger person, larger male versus smaller female, the, just the dilution factor is going to be a big deal. You know, just a bigger person is generally going to have a lesser blood glucose response if we dump X amount of carbs in there. There's just more fluid and surface area and tissue to, to dump the carbohydrate. But again... Um, what I, what I did is I made the recommendation to start with that 50 gram aliquot. And if the person finds it's just too much to eat, then they're going to modify down appropriately. If they end up too high, then the recommendation is to cut that serving in half, which will, you know, bring, bring parameters down. So instead of having like a bunch of charts at like, if you're at this weight, have this much, if you're at this weight, have this much, um, that was going to get super cumbersome. So I tried to deal with it on the the back end where, okay, if it's more than what you could eat, then I guess that's okay because you're going to be eating less than this, you know, because it's just too much to eat in general, particularly if we have other foods 
uh, mixed in the meal. And then if we see a blood glucose response that's higher than what we would like, then we're going to modify down. Okay. And then the second really quick one is, um, you know, uh, to be helpful, you say grams and, and also give a volume measurement. So a weight and a volume, um, let's say something. And again, this is just like nitpicking for folks that I know are going to do it anyways. Um, something like white rice, depending on how moist you like to cook it could be heavier or more voluminous. Um, would you just go with the greater of the two, whichever it is? That kind yeah. Of yeah. I mean, and that's where, you know, you have, uh, this is where it gets kind of funny to me when people are super neurotic about weighing and measuring their foods because usually just preparation methods introduce at least a 10% error rate there. Yeah. And so as an organic biochemist who, you know, lived and died by like, you know, picograms of this versus that. And then when people are spazzing out about their their supposed macros and it's like, well, you don't even know what the water content of your rice is, you know, I mean, so long as it's consistent, then we're, you know, if each time you cook one cup of rice, it's two cups of water and you're at the same altitude and the same lid and all that stuff, then we've got some degree of consistency there. But yeah, I mean, the information we pull out of these USDA databases, um, there's, yeah, like you immediately introduced at least a 10% error there probably. So this yeah. is where also some of the quantified self stuff, I just kind of chuckle because I'm like, you're claiming a degree of accuracy that is smaller than the known error rate in this test, you know? So it's, it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> that, that's a well, well put. And yeah, it's just like, I, but, uh, but it is the, the neurotic crowd will absolutely bring that up. They're like, well, my, my rice is dry. So how do I adjust for that? And you just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the humidity in my room is um no, so okay, so yeah, I mean basically kind of what I was leaning towards is if you for folks that really want to dial it in, look, again, it's up to you, but just go with the greater of the two numbers whether it's grams or volume and you're going to get meaningful results at least enough to to test. Um, and then the other thing too, you know, kind of wrapping up this seven day carb test, which folks can read about in the book, of course, is that this is going to be sort of my template for experimentation with food in general, um, in the sense that, uh, for example, we like to have occasional smoothies, um, not tons, they don't replace every meal, but, you know, occasionally nice. And we're going to try to experiment a little bit with a morning smoothie, do the test to see if blending everything up into a liquid form and downing it that way is going to have a significant difference versus kind of eating all the ingredients separately and chewing them ourselves. Um, so we're just going to play with that, monitor HRV, monitor blood glucose, and kind of use this as a template for some general testing like that. Nice. And the HRV is really nice to be running in the background there, not telling you anything new, but you know, if we see really profound deltas in our blood glucose, it goes high, it goes really low, that's a stress and that will pop up on the HRV. And if that happens to be the one variable that we're introducing, then, you know, that that's a, a, a good secondary validation for what we have going on. Oh, yeah. And we have, so Alessandro Ferretti um, mm -hmm. has come on the podcast before and he, uh, 
you know, I don't have you I don't know if you're familiar with his I work, follow but, his stuff pretty rapidly yeah oh that's yeah. awesome great yeah, yeah. and um, so yeah he and I uh, have become friends and he's got some incredibly interesting data on the relationship between blood glucose ketones and HRV mm. and um, so we've been kind of uh, he's been kind enough to share some of that with me I've been just looking at it with him and um, he's talked a bit about it on the show but even since then, he's compiled a, a lot of really compelling data showing correlations between stress and blood glucose and um, using kind of HRV as well in that mix. Uh, really interesting stuff. So I just look forward to sharing that. I'm glad you're following him because, um, yeah, cool stuff coming out of that camp. Yeah, for sure. All right. So let's see. Um I've got let's I've got two more lined up. Let's why don't we go with um, before we address the four pillars briefly. What is your take on the word hypochondria and why is it such an interesting and it's I think you like going against the grain, Rob. I think well, that's, you, I, I I think I just I have a terrible tendency of questioning stuff, which is part of why <laughs> I got fired from CrossFit and I, I usually do better working on my own, but. Um, you know, I so I like the you know like word roots and where they come from and what the real meaning is behind things. And uh, hypochondria is interesting. So I've been thinking about gut health a lot, and you know, since two thousand, I knew that gut health was a really important feature of this overall story. But it's gotten more and more and more important. Like we just understand the importance more and more, and so. Uh, you know, I've thought about that. And then there's this quote from Socrates, something to the effect that all disease be begins in the gut. And so I'm kind of noodling around on that. I'm like, okay. And then I, it was a long, long, long time ago, but in a, uh, a class for uh, medical terminology, the term hypochondria came up. And it's, hypo means below. Chondria means joint or cartilage, or also more specifically the ribs. And so hypochondria literally means below the ribs, which is basically the gut. Okay. And so what I was noodling on with that is, did someone inadvertently, like did hypochondria at some point in medicine, and I haven't tracked down the answer to this yet, but was there a point in medicine's history when the person who had a million different things going on, when it was like their foot today and their belly tomorrow and a headache the third day, and they couldn't pin anything down. They didn't know what to call the person other than they suspected that it was the gut. And so they gave this term hypochondria. But then somewhere along the line, it took on a negative connotation. And this is the, the malingerer, the recalcitrant patient, the person who's, you know, they always have something going on, but you can't pin down what exactly it is, which is a ton of people that you end up discovering in this like paleo, ancestral health, gluten-free world where they were sick for ages, but nothing exactly fit into like the DSM 10 diagnostic criteria. Like their, you know, immune response was a little wacky, but they weren't specifically autoimmune and it wasn't specifically allergies, but it also wasn't exactly baseline, you know, and they just have a lot of different stuff going on so that, uh, yeah, I, I think if there's anything that I introduce that might stick within medicine, it's the reevaluation of what the the term hypochondria meant versus what it has grown into and maybe a reappreciation of what was trying to be conveyed there. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely um, one of those ones that you, you, you start down that 
road and you're like, really? I just, I, you know, that makes complete sense in the root word. And it's, it is interesting how words evolve and mean different things. So it's, uh, <laughs> that was just funny. I wanted to share that with folks. And we, so real quick too, um, cause I know we've been going a little while and I, and I want to get folks kind of the complete picture is, uh, you also go over what you call the pillars of health. And we actually mentioned them already a couple times, but um, when people see a book subtitled, Turn Off Cravings, Rewire Your Appetite for Fat Loss, and Determine Foods That Work For You, it kind of gives the sense that the book's all about diet. But mm-hmm. but you really, you cover much more than just diet. Um, we've already talked a lot about psychology, of course, but uh, what are the topics of sleep, exercise, and community? How are those related uh, in Wired to Eat? Man, they, you know, and this is the dynamic tension of my desires as, quote, the artiste versus the publishers who want, you know, again, seven days to paleo abs. And uh, there's a reality that sleep and photo period, stress, community, and our movement, and I'm just kind of pulling food out. It's like, okay, yeah, food influences all this stuff, but we'll pull that out for right now. But all these things have really profound feedbacks into the way that our neuroregulation of appetite occurs, the way that systemic inflammatory processes occur. Uh, It's really well understood that people who lack adequate social connectivity are as at risk for morbidity and mortality, early death and, and early disease, as a pack a day smoker. And we don't know exactly why that is the case, but there's a pretty good argument that this is an outgrowth of our kind of evolutionary history of, of developing in extended family groups. And we've historically relied on lots of human interaction to just basically make it through life. And it's not to say that these interactions were great when you look at the historical uh, precedent in, in pre-agricultural societies. There was a not insignificant likelihood that one of these like 150 people that you usually spent the bulk of your life with were going to kill you at some point in your life. Like there was, (laughs) there was a lot of that going on, but there was also a reality that when the rubber hit the road and people needed help, um, the people around you helped you today because they knew that you would help them tomorrow. And there was this reciprocity that, that was really a, a cornerstone of human success. But then when we lack that connectivity, it's a huge stressor. So, uh, you know, I talk about just generally healthy relationships, but also the need for um, social connectivity. The fact that social media is kind of like the junk food of social connectivity, like it feels like it's real, but it just leaves you wanting more. And it's not really addressing the base need, but it did chew up the time that you could have allocated to actual human interaction. So I, I, uh, I give a lot of airplay to those those topics um, because they do ultimately end up feeding back on the whole process and the choices that we make on a social level influence what we eat and influence whether we're active or not. You know, they influence what time we go to bed and, uh, uh, you know, uh, what type of other physical activities that we do. So I, I, again, it's that synthesis piece. Like I really do try to find the simplest path to a, a particular destination, but if there's a huge glaring piece like this community element or or sleep and photo period that would be nice to avoid because of the complexity and the you know just the volume of material you need to get through it'd be great to bypass that from a a lazy author perspective but i would really be doing people a, a 
disservice by ignoring all that. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's much appreciated from my end too, as I buy this and give it out to family members because they kind of sometimes forget that the interconnectedness of things, or I guess maybe not even realized to begin with, honestly, it's not necessarily a forgetting. It's uh, some folks just don't realize how connected these things are. And, right. Um, you know, it's it's no surprise that, uh, to me at least, that um, the things that we go back to time and time again when folks ask us why their heart rate variability is lower than their demographic average, it's looking at exercise, it's looking at nutrition, it's looking at sleep, it's looking at relationships and psychological health. I mean, these are all things that it would not be a surprise for anybody listening to hear me say affects, has a strong effect on heart rate variability at this point. And um, so it really, I think, rounds out the picture that you included that in the book. And like I said earlier, it kind of gives folks like me, it helps to read it written out logically all that way and cohesively because it helps me communicate that better to other folks as well. Right. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's time for the second fact about Rob Wolf that even Rob doesn't know. Also, (laughs) this one's not about a podcast, but, um, if you've ever seen Rob at a conference, there's always kind of this army of people following him around and that's mainly due to his warm generosity and uh, with his time and his knowledge and all of this. But, um, you know, over the years, Rob and I have crossed paths a couple times. Um, but several years ago, before he'd ever heard my name, I'm uh, positive, I had the chance to go on a short walk with him across a park at the Palmer Event Center in Austin, Texas, which, uh, you know, folks may be able to guess that was at Paleo FX. And um, Rob was patiently listening to me as I was saying how I've had good success helping people on a small scale, but that I don't think I have the right letters after my name or some such nonsense that would prevent me from reaching more people with my knowledge. And two things happened in that walk. As Rob led me across the park, it was like, as if he didn't in search even... of barbecue, in search of barbecue, <laughs> in search of barbecue. No, actually, I know where I, I got where you were going. Uh, as as you led me across the park, it was as if you didn't even see the network of sidewalks that were provided in the park. It was, and and you actually you had a goal to uh, go see your wife Nikki on a break during the conference, oh, and that's right. That's right. Yeah, so you were walking in a straight line to towards the house where you guys were staying and uh, right at your goal. And you didn't let arbitrary things like sidewalks slow you down. And um, that small trait at the time really stood out to me kind of as a metaphor for the way that uh, Rob lives his life. And if he's determined to get somewhere, I feel like he will get there in the most straightforward and efficient way available to him and not let arbitrary guidelines kind of lead him astray. And I kid you not, that all went through my head in the moment that we were doing it. I was looking at the sidewalks like, what is this guy doing? At first, he doesn't even see sidewalks. But then I kind of realized, this is a man on a mission. He's getting it done. And with that epiphany fresh in my mind, uh, kind of at the end of that walk, you turned to me and said something like, dude, you seem to already be on the right track. Just get out there and do it. 
<laughs> and, you know, basically don't let these other things hold you back, like the fact that I don't have PhD written after my name, for example. And uh, consequently, that was a couple months before the official launch of Elite HRV. And that was kind of the friendly shove that I needed to go on and create this whole platform, which was to become, you know, the world's largest HRV focused platform uh, in just a few short years. Um, Not only that ended up, this is like unintended side effects, quitting my day job, traveling the world for two years, getting married and being able to help tons of people, which is all just, it's an, I'm insanely grateful for. But um, so just for the folks listening, I rambled a little bit, but this guy has already touched your lives through me, whether you knew it or not. And I absolutely could not have done any of these things or all of these things without focusing on the pillars of health that are presented in Wired to Eat. And the funny thing is, I kind of already mentioned, I had to take the concepts from Rob's early work and combine it with a bunch of other research and experimentation over years and kind of discovering for myself these interconnected pillars and the psychology and that is needed to succeed with all of this. Um, but now, lucky us, there's a roadmap and it's right here in this book. <laughs> um, so whenever you read it, you'll see that Rob's straightforward and honest mentality kind of shines through and that the methodologies are really well presented and well thought out. So big thanks, Rob. I really appreciate all of that. And folks hopefully kind of realize that you've already affected them in a way. Um, but with all that being said, where could they get their hands on Wired to Eat? Oh, well, first, thank you. I, I, it's um, incredibly, uh, uh, God, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. Um, it's a, a decent responsibility to know that I've had some influence on people. And it makes me really not want to screw things up. So uh, thank you for that. It makes me more more mindful about, uh, uh, you know, being present and really listening to people. So thank you for that. Um, if people want to check out Wired to Eat, they can go to robwolf.com forward slash Wired to Eat, W-I-R-E-D-T-O-E-A-T. Um, I'm not sure exactly when this podcast is going up, but we have a number of uh, pre-order bonuses that are going to be attached to the the Wired Deed experience. So if you order online or go to a brick and mortar location and you have a receipt, you ping that to an email address that is listed on that robwolf.com forward slash Wired to Eat, you get access to all the the uh, cool bonuses that we have set up. Awesome. What's the threshold for the pre-order there? It's supposed to stop March 21st. I have a feeling we, we might end up kicking kicking that down the road. It's one of the, the pre-order bonuses is a $20 gift card from Thrive Market if you um, order more than $40. So, I mean, you basically get half off your order. That's about the cost of the book. So, you're, you know, you're, you're in pretty good with that. But that is 100% going away midnight the 21st. Fantastic. Well, yeah, this will definitely be up before that, um, the week before that, in fact. So um, if you're listening to this now and the the podcast is freshly posted, you better head on over there and uh, capitalize on that um, pre-order benefits. Thrive Market, definitely, I I use them all the time. Um, So that's a a big boon if folks have never found that before. With that, we'll wrap up. Rob, thanks so much for joining us and really appreciate all the information. Thanks, man. Huge honor to be on the show. Thank you.
a quick wrap to a great discussion. Links to Wired to Eat can be found right in the description of this podcast episode in your podcast player of choice. Or you can also find them in the show notes as usual over at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did, and whether you're a beginner at this or even all the way up to an advanced biohacker or health practitioner, I definitely recommend checking out Rob's book to take your health journey to the next level. This is Jason Moore signing out. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit hrvcourse.com to get access today.